Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, this this follows nicely on on the, the the chapter on on the world and how we get we become entangled in the world. Of course, we become entangled in the world and suffer because of that because we lack restraint. So this chapter is called the Buddha Bhaga, subtitled "The Restraint of a Buddha," which is what we're developing. You know, the, the eightfold path is a limiting path that limits our eye making, our constant grasping after more or hoping to avoid what might be coming down the pipe which is another form of grasping after isn't it the restraint of a buddha whose knowledge is unsurpassed how would you distract him it's interesting how the buddha opens up with that how would you distract him because he he, he likens that distraction as the primary issue and you've heard me say before that the buddha could have almost as accurately said the first noble truth as there is distraction because it is the preoccupation with dukkha with that which causes stress for ourselves that distracts us from being present for this moment hence the need for a concentration practice a jhana meditation is a meditation method we use so that we can begin to put ourselves where we are which is the only place we can make any changes i can't change my mind for the future and I certainly can't change my mind from last year or the past moment, right? I mean, you can't, can you? It's already happened. And I don't know what influences I'm going to have between now and tomorrow. And I certainly can't pre-plan a quality of mind that I hope to maintain. Tomorrow, I'll be calm. Tomorrow, I won't lose my temper. Tomorrow, I'll be more brilliant. Tomorrow, I'll be taller or younger, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of what is occurring right here and right now? That takes restraint. It takes the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path to put us in our place and liberate ourselves from greed and aversion. And this, what he says there, whose power is unsurpassed, it points at... Knowledge unsurpassed, but yes, same yeah, thing. Knowledge uh, is power. That being distracted is a way of giving up the power that you have yeah. in this moment. Yeah. We can continue to distract ourselves into situations that even substitute for the power that we're giving up willingly by staying rooted in ignorance. Does that make sense what I just said? So we have very intricate strategies to continue to avoid the fact that we're ignorant of these four noble truths. And so that initial intention clouds each and every moment. And what we're gaining is knowledge, but a very specific knowledge. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's not how to change the oil in your car. It's what it means to be a human being. Knowledge. The Buddha often talks about knowledge with regard to stress. It seems almost too simplistic that we should base our entire practice on that. But it really is understanding stress so that I can stop causing it for myself. Remember the Salata Sutta. And if I can end that kind of conflict in my own mind, now I will no longer, I'm no longer capable 
of introducing any type of conflict in the world. And just think about that. That is, the, to me, that's the highest evolutionary possibility of a human being to not contribute to the stress and suffering that's inherent in human life. And to so stay disentangled from the world, reflecting back to the local Vaga that I taught last Tuesday. Just gonna read that again. Whose knowledge is unsurpassed? How would you distract them? Who, <coughs> who has abandoned craving and further becoming, in reference to becoming further ignorant? Who has cut all entanglements? The Buddha answers those questions. Those rightly self-awakened, another important line there. We don't become awakened because some outside agency bestows awakening on us. Again, it's just a little bit of logical thinking shows that that's really impossible. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy. It's fantastic thinking. It's magical thinking. We do it. We're the ones that are the, are the vehicle for our own awakening. awakening. We are sovereign. We are our own agency. The rightly self-awakened one, established in jhana, delighted with a calm mind, resting in renunciation, remaining free and mindful. The wise hold these dear. Human life is rare. Listen to this. This is from 2,600 years ago. During the Buddha's time, like our time, there was the belief in, in some kind of collective or unity consciousness and that somehow that unity consciousness or a belief in some type of religion would bring us a reward later on. Human life is rare. Don't give it up for some future benefit for a prize at the end of the rainbow. The prize is right here and right now if we're mature enough, awake enough to realize it. Human life is rare. Human life is difficult. The chance to hear authentic Dhamma is rare. Awakening is difficult. Abandon all that is hurtful. All that is hurtful. So for some of us, it might be drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or too much sex or too much social media, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the gross aspects of human behavior that everybody can identify as not serving me well. As we deepen our understanding of the Dhamma, we understand that any conflicting thought, anything that conflicts with the reality of me as a human being, as a six property person, is what we're talking about. These very subtle levels of eye-making or self-loathing is what becomes apparent. And again, Zach, you mentioned that earlier today. <coughs> Abandon all that is hurtful, even those slightly Thoughts that we that we like to be ignorant of. We don't want to face it in ourselves that I'm less than up for this moment in my life, that I need myself or something in the world to be different in order for, for me to be happy, pleased, content, not afraid, not angry. And so that focus is always on as long as worldly conditions change. And I hear that from people that come into this room, like what they hear, but they they feel like their, their world is too con con conflicted to take up the practice right now. So it's like, okay, when everything is calm and peaceful, then I'll take to the Dhamma and develop calm. Well, you'll never get there, will you? Because the Buddha states the first noble truth, 
as there is dukkha. And so the Buddha didn't say there is dukkha, but aha, I got a way to escape it. He said, aha, I have a way to understand it. And once we can understand it, we stop contributing to our own stress and to those around us and to the entire world. Abandon all that is hurtful, develop what is skillful. What is skillful is the Eightfold Path. Concentrate the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. That's it. Abandon all that is hurtful, develop what is skillful, and concentrate the mind. This is the teaching of, a, of an awakened human being. Does anybody here feel like they can't do these things? You can say you can't, Julia. So how do you know if it's hurtful? Hmm. Boy, it's a good question. One way you can tell is if there's some agitation about your impetus towards whatever you're doing. Another is simply by results. And sometimes we need the results, but results aren't always enough. John, can you just repeat, can you just repeat that question? I'm sorry. I just didn't hear the question. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you know what is hurtful? Okay. Thank right? you. It, it, I mean, it's a deep and penetrating question. So you, using myself as an example, I'm a recovered alcoholic, but at least on two occasions that I'm aware of, I came very, very close to drinking myself to death. And yet I, I still took another drink and another drink and another drink. I didn't know what was hurtful. Why? Because in that sense, my mind was so distracted by drugs and alcohol that I couldn't think clearly. But just because something is hurtful doesn't stop human beings from engaging in that behavior. That's why the great majority of drug addicts and alcoholics use themselves to death. And that's, that's not just really an extreme example. People do that with just about anything that we can become compulsive about, and that's everything in human life. Drugs and alcohol tend to be a little quicker than food or some other distracting uh, engagement. But so that's how we know. It's a good question, Julie, but what are the results of it? You know, what are the results of my behavior? Because we, John London was right. Instant karma will get you. And karma is instant. It's not something that builds up and, it, and we experience in the future. Right here, right now is our karma unfolding. If you want to know what your karma is, Take a good look in your mirror, meaning be circumspect because, and we're creating that. Again, karma isn't something that's put on us by some outside agency. We are the cause of our karma. We're the cause of our hurt. And in some cases, many cases, we're the cause of hurt, hurting other people. And that is in a very subtle but powerful way, the one that really catches us up. So how do we know it's not our conditioned thinking that's um, that's that the, the feeling is coming from and not this moment? Here's David. Your question is easy when it's the grossest versions of how do you know it's hurtful? Because it's it's the obvious, it's the wrong speech, wrong action. But what you're asking is, like, at the most subtle levels, it's delusion. It's your ignorance of the four little truths. And this whole, what we're doing here is we're developing concentration so we can be mindful of the four little truths. So then at the deepest level, no matter what version of distraction and that uncomfortableness that you feel, you'll recognize it as wrong view. And that's what 
that's it. That's all we're here for. So when you say, how do you know it's hurtful? Well, by definition, if it's wrong view, you're going to recognize it. So again, keep at this because that's the subtleness that you develop. And that's, and that's the beauty of it because I have levels of like distraction that I'm not even aware of yet, but I'm, I have a strong belief that this is a way to develop it. It's not magical. Yeah. It's not that you're going to give it to me or I'm going to listen to something you say and I recognize it. It's just simply something that I know that if I keep developing it, that I'll have those, that tool to recognize that mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I, can I add something, John? Uh, yes, please. Um, sometimes um, as, as you are applying the Dhamma to um, your own subtle mind states, um, I think there's, um, I mean, at least for me, I, I can sort of get mired even like using the Dhamma and then thinking that I'm using the Dhamma and the practice when really what I'm doing is like kind of getting into self-analysis. And so like even the, even your question, like what is hurtful or how do I know it's not my conditioned thinking? Um, you might not, it might just be that whatever is coming up, you just have to be present with and really use the four foundations of mindfulness. I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. I just wanted to say that. It's helpful to me, Jen. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Jen. Mm -hmm. Ram, you had something? Yeah, I in in the same vein, um, you do have to use the concentration and the mindfulness. <clears throat> I like to to keep my mindfulness on what are my motivations in this what I'm doing right now. What are my real motivations here? You know, is there a, a subtle aspect of, of eye making in this? Uh, especially when you're trying to be helpful somewhere, you know? Um, be careful that you're not, you know, setting yourself up as the one who knows, uh, you know, <clears throat> I have the great advice and all that. Um, and it, it's, it's an aspect of mindfulness. That's, that's really what it ends up being. Um, and just have to be careful that it doesn't turn into an aspect of beating yourself to death. You know, at every, um, you know, to be suspicious of yourself, but to be mindful of your of your motivations is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. said, wrong. Yeah. And it is. And then to bring it right back to Dhamma practice, it is the Eightfold Path that lets you recognize hurtful behavior as behavior that is contradictory to right speech, right action, or right livelihood. And those three can really be characterized as remaining harmless to ourselves and others. So right speech, you know, it's just being honest, not gossiping, 
not engaging in idle chatter. And speaking, this is most importantly, speaking only when you know that it's going to be beneficial to the situation. And now I'm not saying don't ever talk about the weather or sports or whatever you might talk about with your friends. But when you're doing that, also recognize that that is idle chatter. It's, it's used as a distraction in our life more than anything else. But those um, cursory engagements with the world are not likely going to destroy our minds. But we should be aware of it, you know. And I mean, I was people that knew me when I was younger into my teenage and early adulthood um, either classified me as extremely shy or antisocial because I hated from the time I was born. I can't remember ever enjoying just gabbing about anything. I just, and that's so even things that you might do as a kid going to parties and stuff, I abhorred going to these things mostly because I knew how awkward it was going to be for me. And of course I blamed myself. And that's, I wasn't being gentle with myself until I realized my natural inclinations, not that I'm, you know, anything special, but my natural inclinations are to avoid idle chatter. And now I know why, because it's, it's contradictory to me as, a, as an awakened human being, as a fully mature human being. It just, there's no need for that distraction. So the Eightfold Path frames that so we can understand our hurtful behavior. And, I, and we've talked often about this and you'll recognize it, Julia. You know, it's, in fact, it's what our conversations are about often is where you're catching yourself and I making and how the Dhamma applies directly to that. Because that's what it's for, right? The Dhamma is here to let us, not let us, to um, direct us towards recognizing I making in this moment and so to abandon it. Great question. Great answers to <laughs> Excuse me. Let me just read that paragraph again. Abandon all that is hurtful. Develop what is skillful. That's always related to the Eightfold Path. Concentrate the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Patient endurance, Kishanti, Kishanti, patient endurance is the foremost skill. The foremost skill we have in the Dhamma is simply to keep going. Patient endurance. Just keep going. Those who mislead or hurt others have lost the Dhamma. Practice the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma. Don't attach other things to your Dhamma practice. With wise restraint, do not disparage others. Be moderate with food. Dwell in seclusion and develop jhana. Again, simple instructions that anybody can do. Understanding stress, the wise disciple knows that a lake of gold coin does not satisfy. The wise disciple delights in the end of craving for an ocean full of gold or anything else. This one is a wise disciple. Escaping to mountains, caves, forests, or shrines brings no protection from ignorance. One of the most powerful sentences I ever read because most of my Buddhist practice was about going someplace away from the world that I could now sit in silence for seven days or 10 days or a weekend or even a day or hours. And somehow escaping from the world in that way was going to resolve my issues with the world. doesn't make sense, does it? Because unlike a prisoner that can escape from a prison, when we make the world our prison, we can never escape from it, can we? 
But that prison is in our own mind. And so we can liberate ourselves from disentangling ourselves from the world. Hence the Lokavaga, that brilliant teaching that I gave last Tuesday. The supreme refuge of any Dhamma, I'm sorry, the supreme reference of my Dhamma brings release from all confusion, delusion, stress, and suffering. The triple refuge of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and a well-focused and well-informed Sangha brings an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So this is how we do it for wondering. We take refuge in the Buddha, which means refuge is a place of comfort or understanding, isn't it? So for us to say something like we take refuge in the Buddha, where does that comfort and understanding come from? That that the Lord God Buddha is somehow going to save us? No, the Buddha never taught anything like that. It simply means taking refuge in the Buddha, taking comfort and safety in this understanding that a human being actually awakened. And then the, the second refuge, the refuge of his Dhamma, and his teachings are still extant. They're still available to us today. And we have that third and most important component. We have a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. So those three things are required for anybody, any human being to awaken. And we have all three of those things here. Realizing the Buddha's Dhamma was the most significant aspect of my life, save for probably getting off of drugs and alcohol, because I wouldn't be here today if I didn't do that. Because of what it's brought me an understanding of what it means to be a human being, which is really all I ever wanted. The triple refuge of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and a well-focused Sangha brings an understanding of these four noble truths. The supreme triple refuge brings release from all confusion, delusion, stress, and suffering. The truly pure person is uncommon. It is a lie that one is everywhere. Even the Buddha was... was disenamored that's a word with the notion of unity consciousness one world consciousness or that we're all going to some great reward someplace non-physical the truly pure person is uncommon it is a lie that one is everywhere we are so caught up with this eye making that we want to and we've created religions and now a modern mindfulness kind of religion that we're all one great giant organism. That's so hurtful to so many people, especially people that are more zealous in their beliefs, such as the rise of violence. Am I gonna get myself in trouble here? Probably. The rise in violence from, yeah, I'm gonna get myself in trouble. Yeah. How do I go around this? It's important to make this point. The rise in violence from tribal views that are now emerging in the world while the world is coming back at them saying, no, your tribal view is nothing. Your religious view is nothing. We're all one thing. That's just hurtful, isn't it? It's hurtful for many reasons, but the, the main reasons it's hurtful is it's not true. We're individual human beings. We are six property people not multi-property people. I'm not you, you're not me. I'm not a tree. I'm not the, the moon on the far side of Pluto. I'm John Haspel. I get a life. I get a breath in the beginning and I get one last breath at the end. Everything else in the middle is up to me. 
and it has nothing to do with what the world's going with going on in the world or whether I'm connected to that. In fact, as we learn, it's best to be disconnected from the world so that we can be mindfully present for each and every moment of our lives and live it. And that's it. That's why we're here. The big secret to human life is to actually be present for that human life. The truly pure person is uncommon. It is a lie that one is everywhere. The rightly self-awakened, self-awakened, the rightly self-awakened one brings true wealth and happiness to their family. True wealth and happiness to their family. Fortunate we are for those awakened. Fortunate we are for those teaching the authentic Dhamma. Fortunate we are for a well-informed and well-focused saga. Fortunate we are for wise restraint, something that no ego wants. Fortunate we are for those that follow, those awakened through my Dhamma, the Buddha saying that. Disciples who have abandoned self-identification, greed and aversion, those fearless and unbound, have abandoned, measure, have abandoned measuring merit. That's today's class, that last line. Abandoning measuring merit. Everything that I learned in every religion, including the Buddhist religions that I studied in, and I studied them pretty sincerely, always had the, the carrot and the stick. There was always the reward. If I did this right at some future date, and every single modern Buddhist practice, that future date was in some non-physical existence outside of this. That's just escape. And if I get my mind stuck in that, which it was for many years, what's occurring right now isn't important because I know, because I'm so wonderful, that when I die in a couple zillion years, it's never defined, I'll be okay to, to I'll be good. But not in this life. I was told when I was confirmed that you, your, your place in heaven is now assured and you will be sitting at the right hand of God for all eternity. Does everybody remember that when you got confirmed? That scared the living bejesus out of me. It honestly did. Because I didn't like sitting in church in God's house. That I was going to have to live this life, die, and then I'm going to be forced to stay at his right hand for eternity. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how many people are going to fit there? You know, that's like just crazy thinking. But it was a terrifying thought to me. And it's the, it, when I came across a sutta like this, that we're not all one. We're living this human life, and this is what we should be focused on. Not that if I, if I break one of the Ten Commandments, that's it. You know, my right hand at the seat of God is gone, but I'm going to someplace even worse than that. That's really no way to, to, to live in the world, is it, with that kind of fractured thinking? And yet, and again, I'm not blaming anybody. A lot of people grew up with this. Or in modern Buddhism, which really substitutes the idea of Tulsita Buddhist heaven, some kind of uh, heaven-like experience for Buddhists, which is really just the same. If you do everything right, when you, get, when you die, you're going to get something. But no human being can do everything right. And if we, if we are in the belief that I, I cannot do anything wrong or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn in hell or never get to Buddhist heaven and there's Buddhist religions that have their own version of hell, 
Well, that's a fractured mind to live through life, isn't it? But if I can understand that what's most important, and it, in, in this case, it doesn't matter what's beyond death. If I'm living this life, if I'm in this moment, then every moment is meaningful. Every moment is inspiring, no matter what's occurring. I had an experience yesterday. I had some specific test done. It was called an EMG. It mentions measure your nerve responses. And the results of the test weren't great, but I had such a the, the doctor was just a lot of fun. And we had a great conversation about everything else except what was going on. You know, sticking these needles and my muscles are jumping up around. But I had a great time there. Well, I wouldn't say it was a great time. I had a pleasant time. Why? Because I was, I was present for what was occurring. I wasn't hoping that I could get out of there. I didn't have someplace else to go. I did. But, and so each and every moment of our life, if we can be present for it, will be meaningful. So, all right. That was today's sutta and my talk to, to follow it up. Let's go online first. Let me get over here so I don't forget. Who's there? Let's start with Dr. Kevin. Good morning, Dr. Kevin. Hello, everybody. Thanks, John. Um, the sutta, there are so many important lines. Almost every line of it is the Dhamma and the teaching and the truth. Um, but really, you know, one thing that jumps out is, you know, the, at the beginning, those rightly self-awakened, established in jhana, delighted with a calm mind, resting in renunciation, remaining free and mindful. The wise hold these dear. And it's to me that's such a you know it it shows what the goal is and yeah. we are given a way to get there with the eightfold path and it's just so precious so thank you yeah. thank you kevin i see it exactly the same way mary how are you this morning good morning good morning everyone um, I like what David said that, you know, really, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, but um, really with all the questions that we have or, you know, we want to address, it really comes back to um, holding ourselves accountable, looking in the mirror and looking at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and am I living on that path? like staying on that path and when i have understanding through the sangha through um reading the buddhist teaching am i able to take that off my cushion to live my life and i think that's you know the the i think that's the path you know that we can have these moments of understanding and then we have to um look at how we're living our life we have a path to follow. Are we following that path? And are we able to take that, those, the understanding off the cushion to live our lives? Um, and I think that's kind of what it comes down to. So thank you. Well said, Mary. Thank you. Good morning, Jen. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Um, I just was considering how this sutta I feel like really highlights like the middle way and yeah. um you know uh 
if you've been kind of like to Julia's questions, if you've been practicing um, and engaging in right effort, it's hard to not get sometimes attached to an idea of what a good practice looks like or what awakening is. And then again, be hard on yourself. So um, I've been kind of playing around with this a lot recently and just kind of, you know, the, the practice teaches me how to let go of a lot of ways of thinking. And so that also means to be letting go of how I, how, you know, conditioning that has come up around my practice. And, um, it's just so remarkable how it, it really just does boil down to like me remembering to be gentle and just consistently letting go of, of, uh, that sort of what Ram was speaking to just, um, setting yourself up to be hard on yourself or to beat yourself up. So this has been a good class. Thank you, Jen. Good morning, Tom. Morning, John. Uh, yeah, thanks for the teaching. I'll first of all, just echo what, what Jen said. Um, I've, struggled a little bit recently as I as John you're aware we talked earlier in the week with um you know life dukkha has occurred in my life and in the you know obviously (laughs) but um it's and I I think the fact that I've come quite a long way in this practice and I'm even now um you know teaching this stuff it it, you're, I can become even more inclined to be harsh on myself when I, when I get affected by dukkha and when I get caught or carried away um, with my own mind. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's good to know that I'm not the only, um, you know, even more experienced uh, meditator in this room that maybe, uh, you know, um, experiences that um and and yeah it it does it's it's always and and teachings like this are a great reminder of the need to be be gentle to ourselves and just as it said um the the foremost skill is patience patient endurance which is which is you know because it would be easy to give up wouldn't it especially when the you know in your mind the progress is not as quick as you want it to be or you're like come on tom i'm still thinking like this so this is still happening and how long have I been doing this for so I think patient endurance is a really a really great great reminder and I had a question which is for you John but also for anyone else Um, it's around this this topic of um, idle chatter and the reason it, it sort of struck me is because you know, I was even thinking about, obviously, I jumped on this call and the, the topical thing was, at least with me and my my accent, is to talk about the coronation, right, which has been happening. And it is, at the end of the day, it's idle chatter, isn't it? Um, and Idle activity. Right, yeah. And, and yet, and in, in reality, so much of 
chatter. If you're really to cut it down, and, and we, I was just thinking about my own life, when I'm in the world, of course there are, you know, maybe 5% of my chatter is, is practical, but maybe as high as 95%, I mean, I'm putting a random number out there, is you could you could class it as idle chatter. So <clears throat> look at it like that. Um, how how are we to live in the world and to engage with other people yeah. um, in a way which is in accordance with the eightfold path, and yet at the same time is not you know, cutting yourself off from the world. Because uh, I know that that's not something that, 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 that you sort of recommend um, or even that the Buddha recommends, but, but th there is that, that reality that is there, right? Is that 95% yeah. is either. So you can't realistically go around and spend your day talking about the Dharma or, you know, um, I mean, you could, but uh, <laughs> uh, at some point, people wouldn't necessarily... But always taught, taught teaching the right, you know, choosing the right moment to talk about the Dharma, right? So I don't know. Uh, and I'm not like you, John, in the sense that I am naturally, um, you were giving a story of your childhood when you were very quiet. I'm more likely to be sort of gregarious and social and maybe mm -hmm. opinions, but I'm obviously questioning those opinions and the need for those opinions. So anyway, just, just yeah, thoughts of that or thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm glad you asked it so I can, um, I mean, this is the right class to talk about this. Um, so I gave an example just earlier about the couple hours I spent, hour and a half I spent with Dr. Young um, getting these this electromyogram. <coughs> and we, like I mentioned I was a meditation and mindfulness teacher um, but that's as far as that went but we talked for two hours so all of it was idle chatter so first and foremost right speech right action and right livelihood have to guide our dhamma practice and as we come together as a sangha so of course we don't engage in idle chatter here but at least it's very very little um, off our cushion we shouldn't be seeking idle chatter but when it occurs, when we're out in the world, we should speech, speak appropriately to people. In other words, you don't want to ignore people um, at all, ever, um, except if people are getting into what is obviously wrong speech, such as hate speech or, you know, whatever the, the modern common um, grievances of the day. We avoid those kind of things. So we use our concentration and our refined mindfulness in a very skillful way to know when um, we engage in idle chatter. But even then, um, we, we can practice a form of right speech, meaning not don't get into hateful kind of speech, even if someone insists on going there, um, or any kind of speech that would promote something that would be violent or hurtful towards others. Those are things that we should just avoid as common as human beings. But as Dharma practitioners out in the world, we have to talk to people. You know, that's the only way we can function. The Buddha gave some examples of this, right? So 
there was the, the admonition that we don't kill people, we don't kill. And there's a few stories, uh, a few suttas where this, the underlying story is that uh, monks and nuns left the, the monastery or the forest wherever they were staying and went into town to beg for a, a bowl of food. And some of the younger ones would come back to the Buddha and they'd be proud. They'd say, so-and-so offered me a little bit of, of, of goat and I wouldn't take it. And the Buddha always admonished them because what they were doing was blocking another person's generosity out of their own ideology. It was a wrong action. It was hurtful in that sense. And so the same thing should apply to us, to know when it's appropriate to talk, to keep our conversations, even if it's idle conversations, framed as best as they can by the right, by the Eightfold Path and right speech, which in that instance is to remain harmless. You know, again, just an example that popped into my head. I used to go to this AA meeting. Um, I won't say where it was. And three of the more established people um, all around my age, you know, mid 60s or older, they just decided to start telling in, in this room, really awful, what we used to call dirty jokes, I guess we still do. And, you know, I wasn't into it. And what did I do? I didn't, I didn't act like I liked what they were talking about or even laugh about it. I looked at them and I just walked away. And I think I probably shook my head a little bit, which I didn't need to do. But, but, but again, we don't have to be in situations that are prone to hurtful idle chatter. But when we're out in the world, we engage in the world, you know, and, and that's just that, that, that's the, um, the the sensible way, the non-hurtful way of living in the world. And there's right? also a way of putting someone at ease <clears throat> by engaging in talk that's not essential Dharma talk. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I moved to Doylestown and I, I take a uber around to doctor's uh, appointments and to maybe get into town to do some grocery shopping occasionally um and i always engage the drivers you know i i tell them they have a nice car or whatever it might i mean i just i just do it because it's a much more pleasant way for the two of us to spend you know five or ten minutes together it's just living in the world so does that help tom yeah yeah it does does yeah because you're framed by the equal path yeah you're limited that you won't speak in a hopeful manner that that idle chatter won't spill into gossip so if you're a, if you're speaking 95 percent of your time is idle chatter how much of that is spilling into gossip and hurtful speak yeah. and again that's where the gens teaching on mindfulness and awareness that to julie's point how do you know if you're being hurtful? Well, because you're mindful of it. You you don't go into anything yeah. besides common, you know, these casual conversations. That's got you have to get through the day, yeah. but you're framed by the equal path. Yeah. And then yeah. so I get, you know, one side of that is being hurtful, obviously, to others, but it's also being hurtful possibly to yourself, which be in negative talk but could also be in so i think a lot of idle chatter is building up your is building up or maintaining your own sense of ego right? so yeah. that side of it which is 
you're being hurtful to yourself if you're using idle chatter to maintain the sense of ego. Um, so that's another form of it, right? So it's also a way of looking at your speech and saying, am I saying this just to be popular or to, um, you know, tell a joke for the sake of it? Or am I, uh, you know, to, to feel good? Um, or, or am I to, to be helpful or just- Yeah, and that's the fine line between, um, and that's where it takes concentration, it takes jhana, to know when I'm just engaging in skillful idle chatter i don't think i've ever used those three words together but we will skillful idle chatter meaning that the chatter itself the conversation doesn't fall off the guardrails of remaining harmless you know and sometimes it will and that, that's when we um that's why I, I got another example um the uber ride i got yesterday back from the hospital was with a guy i don't even know how we got onto being authors but anyway, he started telling about two books that he just published up on Amazon. And one was a, was a book of short stories of very violent murders, like horror stories. And the other was called um, Golf is Better with Beer. And it's just what they, and yeah, neither one really impressed me as something I wanted to read. So I, did, I just didn't comment on it. I didn't say, wow, that's great. I can't wait to read it. I just let it go. Because there wasn't any other response to me, if I said anything um, that would have been agitating, such as, well, how can you write that crap, right? That wasn't, that wasn't the right place for me to do it, right? I was in his car, in his house. And just because there's a lot of people that think his books are really great, I suppose, but I don't. So I, don't have to, I just don't have to engage in it. But it doesn't mean that I have to condemn this guy because he wrote books that I, don't, I wouldn't write. Right? I mean, that's that there, there is dukkha. That's the first noble truth. I understand it. So, you know, no reaction. Okay, good for you. But, and that might be difficult for us at first to, to practice that aspect of noble silence, but that's what Dhamma practice is about as well, too, isn't it? Getting used to that. Another great question, Tom. Any, anything else you'd like to add? Taking enough time. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you joined us. Mr. Kemp. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Um, Hello, great discussion. Great student. Yeah. Terrific questions from everybody and comments. Um, I agree. I, I've had the great good fortune of having a raised autistic son. And we talk almost daily. And he is ultra logical about everything. Yeah. And as a result, his, his interactions with fellow human beings is always a trial. Yeah. Especially in idle conversation. He just cannot understand what the purpose is, idle conversation. Yeah. And his choice would be just to kind of stare at you without response, unless there was some purpose in communication. So it, he's, uh, he's in his 40s now, and we still talk almost every day about simple things like people saying, good morning, how are you? 
right? A common greeting. We almost do that universally with everybody. And he he has to analyze that and say, um, you know, why is it important to you how I feel? Or, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, time and time again, I have to explain to him that you don't have to understand it so much as understand that there are consequences for your behavior in their eyes, mm. right? That these are socially acceptable. They don't have to make any sense at all. They won't make sense, really, other than the fact that human beings like to see themselves reflected in other people. In other words, you affirm your existence by getting reaction from somebody or something. Yeah. Right? So yeah. in in that sense, it's really important to respond in what that other person feels in a, is an appropriate way. Not that you have to agree or you, you have to follow that lead so much as, for example, often Barrett will ask, well, what's wrong? He, so he learned the phrase, the silent treatment somewhere. Um, someone probably asked him, why are you giving me the silent treatment? So yeah. now that's that's a real question in his mind. Why do I have to talk to these people when they say good morning? Right? So, <laughs> yeah. It, it it's a universal problem for all of us. It, it it can't be solved so much with logic, so much as you have to realize that there are consequences for not engaging with people. Yeah. You you live in the world. You live with all the rest of us crazy human beings, and. Uh, it's an inevitable consequence of being in society, really. Yeah. You, you have to engage on some level or another. Um, you wouldn't want to stand there with, with your mouth hanging open and not say anything, nor would you begin spouting the Dhamma at people, right? You, you have to meet people where they are. And... Yeah. Um, you know, one of the strategies I give him is if he gets into a conversation, especially if it's inappropriate or it's going a direction he senses not right, it, it, it's a little deceptive, but I tell him to pick up your cell phone and act like you got to call and excuse yourself because he doesn't have a better strategy. We do, right? Yeah. But a certain level of idle chatter is, is, simply a survival mechanism in the society we're in. Yeah, again, as long as that idle chatter isn't used for eye-making. Right. That, that's always looking at our intention behind things. I have a, a nephew who's on the spectrum, and he's just he's in his early, mid-30s. And he's like that. He, he, he can't engage in idle chatter. But, you know, he, he's, a, he's a, a, a great guy. I almost called him a kid. You know, he's got a job that he loves and he's he's living he's living a pretty good life, you know, so. Uh, we, so we can... I have sort of a question, uh, Julia's uh, question about how do you know, uh, how, how do you how do you know what's. Uh, what's hurtful or harmful or 
I don't remember exactly how she phrased it, but it, it to me, it seems as though we all have some level of intuition, as it were, about whether or not what we're doing is good or bad. And for me, I think it, there, there's a certain sense you be, you, you're, you're engaged in something and there's that little nagging sense. It's, it's almost just a question, right? It, you, if you have to ask the question, then the chances are pretty good that, that what you're engaged in or what you're doing or the thoughts you have or the speech you're engaged in may be harmful. Yeah, because that 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 for me that nagging question is a recognition by any other name of stress, right? That's yeah. the beginning of a stressful reaction, mm-hmm. right? So it 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 should be a, a signal, right? That that if you have to ask the question, the answer is yes, it's harmful. Usually, yeah. Right. So sometimes the the conditioned thinking and and uh, and underlying behavior is so that we're ignorant of it. We 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 just can't see it in ourselves. Yeah. So that the gross behavior will come out like that, but some of the more subtler aspects um, are are hard to see. You know. But yeah, anytime we're we're agitated about anything. And agitation could be, I can't wait till I get my new car tomorrow. I mean, that you're, I've lost my mind in this moment, haven't I? Again, understandable, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that's an agitating thought. Take a breath, unite my mind and my body, remind myself that whatever's occurring has nothing to do with me. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Thank you, Jeff. Is, is Deborah there with you? Uh, she's, uh, she's nursing a ill cat. We had the cat in the hospital last night. So. Oh, I hope the kitty's okay. Well, yeah. please tell her I said hello. Well, thank I'll you. Talk, I'll talk to you soon, Jeff. I think there's one more. Who's on here that I didn't get? Brian, how could I forget you? Good morning, Brian. It, I get forgotten all the time. It's totally fine. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that I have a ton to add. Uh, great discussion. I did get asked yesterday by a, a colleague why I won't talk about my weekends on Monday morning. And I said, well, it's in the past. I don't really feel compelled to talk about it anymore. It's over. I'd like to stay where I'm at. I said, why do you feel the need to talk about the weekend? Just didn't really have an answer. I'm like, it's you're trying to satiate something in your mind, this social discourse and yeah, uh, this yeah. this need for that that chit chat. And I said, by the, the fifth or sixth meeting on Monday morning, where I've heard, how was your weekend? 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 I don't want to talk about my weekend anymore. <laughs> it's just this. How was this, your day yesterday, Bob? Yeah, it was, it's over. It's what I usually say. Um, but it, it's this, this conditioned, habituated thought processes as humans that we have that we get into these situations. That's just our default. We don't even think yeah. that we're doing it anymore we just do it yeah, and, we uh, do it because we have to do it yeah. so i and usually just say how was your week and i say it's over and we move on we get back to work and that's yeah. you know that's where i'm at now so <laughs> maybe i don't have a lot of friends and i 
<laughs> That's okay too. Well, I understand that too. It, right? I know you do. <laughs> I, I, I can't think. I've always I, I can't think of anything more boring to talk about than myself, especially what's going on with me, because it's already going on. You know, I I don't I don't want to rehash it. I don't want to drag it around with me. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's, that's what I, I mentioned. It's like if you if you keep talking about the past, you keep pulling it forward into the future, and you never get rid of it. You never you're never right. released from it. Yeah. Same with the future. Yeah, we talked. May, may I say something? Sure, Mary. I, I'm a little more on the gregarious side, so um, I think people are just trying to get to know you better. I think oh, they've known me for 15 years. They're good. <laughs> but also the other thing I do, because I don't always do a lot on the weekend, you know, and some people have a, you know, big story to tell or something. And I don't always have a lot, you know. And so I often find that if you just say, you know, the weather was really awesome. I was able to get outside or whatever. People move on, you know, because they might oh, yeah. be in their own egoic space. Right. Sure. But you don't create a negative consequence is sure what I'm thinking about. And then, and again, I, I know this is gonna sound a little defensive, but my intention with asking about the coronation was to um, have interest in something that's going on in your life, uh, Tom, um, as someone across the pond. So that, that may have felt like idle chatter, but it was a sincere interest in uh, sort of the cultural experience that you were having over something that's way over the top and probably a little bit, you know, silly, um, but reverent to some people. And, and so sometimes that's the gesture as well. It's not idle chatter. It was kindness from me to you to be interested in something that was going on in your space. So and just, yeah. to, just to clarify, when I took it that way as well, it was, and I, I do, uh, you know, there's a certain side of me, which yeah, I, I, it's a way to connect to people. It's, I'm a curious, you know, I used to be yeah. a, I'm all about asking questions and being curious and I enjoy that side of it. And that's why I was asking the question. Cause I was like, wait, but is everything idle? In which case do I, you know, do I have to shut down that part of me, which, yeah. which makes which part of, you know, partly makes, makes life fun. Right. If you're having an engaging conversation yeah. with someone. We can become hypervigilant about these things, you know, the, but the, the way to maybe abandon that or avoid getting hypervigilant is just recognize in this moment, am I engaged in eye making? Right. That's it. Am I trying to promote myself in some way? I mean, even that it could be, am I trying to make the other person love me by my conversation or is it just, a just human interaction, which is what we should be doing. But again, that's that's where we need to bring a well-integrated Dhamma practice into each and every aspect of our lives, so we don't devolve into unskillful idle chatter. That we keep it keep it clean and well focused. So I'm going to move on a little bit. Thank you all. Uh, anybody mind being on camera? Here's Julia. Hello, Julia. Hey guys. Morning. Like this yeah. was really timely for me. Thank you, John, for the teaching. Because this has been on my, this topic, everyone said great things. This topic has been, you know, in my mind a little bit for the past few weeks or months or whenever. <laughs> um, I, I'll make this very quick, but I am, um, 
I visit people's houses as my job. So sometimes I feel like engaging in idle chatter and then other times I don't. And um, honestly, now after listening to everybody, it, I came to the realization that like, for me, like it's okay if I don't feel like it in that moment, but then tomorrow I may want to. And it does, it can make life very fun. Um, but also sometimes it's it's nice if you just want to be quiet. So like either one is perfect. I guess it just depends what you're feeling in that moment or like what you're, but I, I um, visited someone yesterday, yes, two days ago or yesterday. And um, it was like this 80 something year old woman. And um, um, the result of me engaging in idle chatter was, you know, hanging out with her because I was with her for seven hours going through her um, music she used to listen to in the 50s. And and it was actually an amazing time because I felt like I got to know this woman and she showed, and I had a lot of fun. And there, now that I'm realizing it, there was no eye making and it was a great time. So, yeah. yeah so Yeah, great example. Yeah. yeah that, and I, I would bet that you didn't engage in idle chat, I mean, in gossip or any kind of speech that was hurtful towards another human being. That's what we should be doing in the world. Again, we meet people where they are. What's that? I get it now. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. <laughs> good morning, Bridget. Thank you for the teaching. I'm going to take notebook silence. I'm glad you joined us. Thank you. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. Thank you for the teaching. I um, I love the last line about the abandoned measuring merit. Yeah. I think. I think as soon as we get caught up in measuring merit, we're inherently in the state of condition thinking about the future. Yeah. Um, and John, what's stuck with me, of, you know, with some of our conversations really powerfully is the first arrow, right, which is took occurs, and the second arrow, which is our response to that. Right? Yeah, that's right. And for me, when I understand, what I understand to be the much more subtle nature of harmlessness is the first arrow is, is, is right. That's just the nature of it. And the second arrow is should. And so in those scenarios where you're talking about, I should be engaging with this person or I should not, you're putting pressure on yourself for being something other than what it is in that moment. And that, that for me has been, biggest liberating dimension of this practice thus far for me. Oh, that's that's great insight. Mm -hmm. It is and should. We shouldn't should on ourselves. So. Don't should on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <Thank> you, <laughs> Julia, do you mind being on? Well, you're on anyway. Do you mind if I put the focus on you? No. Welcome to our song, Julia. Thank you. Um, I feel lost in all of the great things. Is it normal to bring like a notebook and take notes? And sure you can, but what what really it's it's just coming to class as often as you can and the, the repetition is what really settles this within you yeah. but taking notes are fine you yeah. know so like yeah come back to class and bring a notebook if you want yeah. these these all my classes are recorded so you can listen to them again as well yeah you know some people find note taking is helpful so. no i think it's raising a ton of great questions for me and that's probably good to share yeah, well, I'm glad you joined us. Thank you. Always be gentle with yourself. You hear me say this at least every class, probably more than once in class, but that's the key to it. Don't judge yourself or the Dhamma harshly.
uh, and pretty soon you'll be reaping the benefits of this practice. So, and I also suggest that to Zach and to everyone that you start uh, your meditation with shorter periods rather than longer. And twice a day is much more important and much more um, skillful will bring more benefit than say sitting for an hour and a half on a Sunday afternoon when you might feel like you have the time rather than two five minute sits every day. So as long as or as soon the sooner you can introduce that structure and kind of stick with it, the quicker your Dhamma practice will progress. But you know, come to class and uh, I'm so glad you joined us today. So thank you. Here's Rob. Yes, Ron. Oh, thank you. Yeah, great discussion. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> just wanted to emphasize patient endurance one more time. Yeah. It really is. That, that again, that's, that's another word for patience is being gentle, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Key. And finally, here's David. Hello. I always like to bring it back to the title of the teaching. And of course, today was restraint. And oftentimes people rail against the concept of restraint. Yeah. But wise restraint is what we're talking about. We're talking about speech and idle chatter and actions. And is it appropriate to be angry sometimes? And can I be ambitious? But restraint is, in this practice, wise restraint is restraint to the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. It's restraining you, it's limiting you. And therefore, there can be idle chatter if you go into that conversation with the restraint of the Eightfold Path. Yeah. So therefore, it doesn't go into gossip and it doesn't turn into harmfulness. That sometimes a Conversation just propels the day along. How are you? Yeah. Doesn't mean any, any more than that. But if your intention is to I make, then of course that would be wrong. So restraint is a limiting thing that I welcome because yeah. it, it allows me then to each moment be harmless. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Wise restraint equals gentleness in this moment. So a, a lack of restraint might be that, oh, I, I didn't meditate long enough or hard enough or right enough, or I'm, I'm just no good to get this. Those are all aspects of a lack of restraint. You know, our minds are unrestrained. So they go towards self-loathing or other loathing, you know, or life is treating me poorly. Well, life doesn't treat us poorly. We treat ourselves poorly. Our circumstances can seem less than ideal, but how we think about ourselves in relation to our circumstances determines everything. Any other questions or comments before we finish with Meta? What's that? Oh, <laughs> what, you want me to take a picture? There's Johnny. All right. Um, I'll be teaching next Tuesday's class, but then we're going to have, I think, four classes or five classes with uh, our other Dhamma teachers, unless I sneak in. Jen's next Saturday. Jen is next Saturday. All right. 
Yeah, because I was uh, scheduled kind of time off because I was going to have surgery next Wednesday, but I'm putting that off uh, at least for a couple months. Maybe I won't need it at all. So. Uh, okay, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which describes the qualities of an awakened human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. They're humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. They're not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They're always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for the wonderful class this morning. Thank you. Peace. And uh, Julie and I are going out for coffee or breakfast, and anybody is... And everybody's welcome to join us. See y'all. Hey, John. Yes, can I, just, can I just ask a quick question about the edits? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, do you, would you like me to actually change the, um, the edits or you want me to just highlight where I found an error? Uh, why don't you just go ahead and change it? Because okay. I, would, I would do that anyway. Okay. So you don't yeah. want me to like save it so that you can see what I changed or anything like that. Like an no, 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 no. All right, I mean, cool. would, unless you're rewriting, you know, a couple of paragraphs. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do, not get into any of that. It's just like spaces and flip flops and yeah, that, missing a comma a, or something like that. It's a great help, Jen. Thank you. Oh, and also, my I actually elicited quite quite a bit. She actually did a significant part of editing my mom. So we can thank her. <laughs> I didn't hear the last. I shared the Google document with my mom, and she did a bit of editing as well. Wow. She did. She's highlighted, you know, places that need to edit. So now I'm going to get it all into that other document you need. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. See you next week. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.org.
www.thinkingmusicgroup.com. Thank you. Peace.